Welcome to Present Value, a podcast created by students at Cornell University's Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management. I'm your host, Michael Brady. This is the fourth episode in our 10-part season. We have Renaissance man Robert Hockett joining us on Present Value this month. Hockett is the Edward Cornell Law Professor here at Cornell Law School. He holds a BA and a JD from the University of Kansas, a master's in philosophy with a mathematical logic emphasis from Oxford, where he was a Rhodes Scholar, and an LLM and JSD from Yale Law School. Hockett has worked for the International Monetary Fund, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and is currently senior counsel for Westwood Capital LLC in New York City. He is a regular writer for many publications, including Forbes, The Financial Times, and Fortune, and also makes regular appearances on Bloomberg Radio. Hockett is a fellow at the Century Foundation and a favorite professor among many Cornell Law students. Robert Hockett, thank you for coming on to Present Value. Hey, Michael. Thanks so much for having me here. Let's start our conversation with a dive into modern monetary theory, or MMT. MMT has been growing in popularity over the past few years, and you've also started to contribute to the MMT movement. Most of our listeners will be new to MMT, so could you take us through our current financial system as explained by this theory? Yeah, sure. So it's probably best to sort of describe me as a fellow traveler rather than an actual member or contributor. And the reason is fairly straightforward. I'm not sort of trained in MMT as such, but as a lawyer who sort of looks at finance and the financial system and how the financial system works and who looks at the role that money plays, of course, in any financial system and the the role that the, the law has to play in constituting money, it would be very difficult for me not to arrive at sort of similar conclusions to those that the MMT folk arrive at. And so we've all become kind of a a loose alliance, I guess you could say, of economists or finance folk on the one hand and, and, and lawyers perhaps or maybe legally informed or legally trained finance folk on the other hand. So we're kind of a loose assortment and we all kind of think more or less alike about money and finance. Uh, and I suppose that's that's probably the best way to characterize my, my relation to the movement. Now, what would the movement be or how best to characterize it? The way I look at it, at its core, it's all about the role that the law or that the polity or that the state plays in constituting money itself and hence in constituting any financial system. So what do I mean by that? Maybe the easiest way to kind of get into that is to pull out a dollar bill or a $5 bill or a $10 bill or any other kind of bill that you might have in your pocket and take a look uh, to see what it reads across the top. So if it's a dollar bill or a $5 bill or, or what have you, it'll say Federal Reserve note across the top. Now, a lawyer knows right away that that word note has a special meaning. It's not just a, a sort of a mental note that you've made or uh, a note that you've written to your spouse or your girlfriend or boyfriend or what have you. It's a short for promissory note. A promissory note is simply a written promise to pay something or a promise, a recognition that you hold a certain responsibility or liability to somebody else. That's the sort of immediate tip-off that money has something to do with promises. It's also a bit of a tip-off to the effect that money that circulates publicly, that's used across an economy, involves a kind of promise that's made by some public authority, right? In this case, the state or the central bank that is created by that state. In the U.S., that's, of course, the Federal Reserve System. In the U.K., it would be the Bank of England. In Sweden, it would be, of course, the Riksbank and and so on and so forth. Now, what the MMT folk seize upon and what any, I think, again, legally informed finance expert would also seize upon is that what this means, in effect, is that the money out there isn't some exogenously given substance or some exogenously given quantum. 
it's rather something that's issued by a particular issuer, in this case, the government itself or some government instrumentality, in this case, of course, the central bank. And what that means in turn is that there's no, quote unquote, natural shortage of money or no natural shortage of capital of a certain kind. That's not to say that there aren't constraints. It's just to say that the constraint isn't what the popular imagination seems to think that it is. The popular imagination seems to think that money somehow still has some connection to precious metals, that there are certain stocks or stores of precious metals, and that you know the money is somehow tied to that, and therefore there's some kind of a, a natural limit on how much money can be put out there or how much money can be issued or what have you, or that there's somehow something fundamentally debasing, if I can use that term, about an overissuance of money. And that's, of course, simply false. The only real constraint when it comes to money issuance on the part of a government is what MMT folk would call the resource constraint. Uh, and I think that's probably a useful term to use in this connection. And essentially what's being got at there is that there are certain times when if you're overissuing currency, the only way to understand what over means in that context is that too much currency is being issued or too much money is being put out there relative to the resources that can be purchased with or commanded by use of that particular currency. And the resource constraint itself sort of varies over time. If you're in the midst of an economic downturn, a long-running recession, or a debt deflation, such as that we went through in the immediate aftermath of 2008, that's a time when the resource constraint is hardly present at all, because there's such slack out there when it comes to actual spending, when it comes to actual purchasing out there in the economy, that it's necessary for somebody to take up that slack. Usually that slack, of course, in a case like this is in the private sector, so the public sector has to step in to take up the slack and spend where private parties are not willing to do so. And you'll know when you start bumping up against the resource constraint, essentially by noticing the prices are suddenly rising. In other words, when inflation takes off. But as anybody will tell you, in the aftermath of 2008, we've not been faced with an inflation problem. Not even yet. Uh, we've been faced with a deflation problem, the very contrary. So the MMT folk would highlight that fact and say that we're very far from bumping up against the resource constraint. And there is no other constraint, right, that it's an artificial imposition or an illusion to think that somehow or another the government can go broke or the government's going to bust its budget somehow if it spends too much or if it issues too much in the way of currency. Maybe we could get into what it means for the government to be the issuer of money. I understand that there's a difference between thinking of the government as the issuer versus a user of money. Also, could you comment on the fact that MMT is not really painting a new picture of what the financial system should be hypothetically, but rather they're giving us a new understanding of how the financial system and government actually works today? Yeah, sure. So one way to think about it is this way. The way people typically talk about government budgets or the public sector budget is by sort of analogizing a state or a polity to a family or a household. So what they're effectively saying is, okay, well, you know, the government spends money, but the government doesn't actually produce anything, so there are only a couple of ways to get the money that it spends. One is to uh, issue bond instruments, which is essentially a form of borrowing. And the other way, of course, is to tax, basically just to take money away from citizens. And the just-so story is that those two inputs to the government budget, those revenue sources or revenue streams, namely, again, borrowing and taxing, have to roughly balance, at least in the long run, the actual expenditures. And in that sense, they're, again, analogizing a state or a polity to a household or a person, because, of course, if you or I wants to go out and buy things, you know, we either have to borrow the money to buy the things or we have to have the money that we've saved up to buy the things. And so, you know, and if we keep spending, quote unquote, beyond our means, if our outflows continue to exceed our inflows, 
we end up ultimately coming up against you know, the possibility of bankruptcy. Now, what the MMT folk will emphasize, and this is legally quite sound, and it's kind of astonishing, therefore, that more lawyers haven't been on to this even sooner, is that it's a bit of an absurdity to suggest that a government can go bankrupt when it actually has the capacity to issue its own currency, right? In other words, the government doesn't actually have to tax anybody in order to get money, and it doesn't have to borrow money in order to get money because it issues the money. It issues the currency itself, and that's where that Federal Reserve note written across the top of the dollar bill comes into it. Now, there are many more ways through which the government, quote-unquote, issues currency or issues money, but the easiest way intuitively or sort of viscerally to grasp this role that the state or the government or that the sovereign polity has is by reference to that picture of the dollar bill that it's issuing. So what the MMT folk will say that it is a government simply can't go bankrupt in its own currency like that. And actually, central bankers in the past who sort of understand how all of this works will point that out too. Greenspan is on record as having noted this. Bernanke is on record as having noted this. I mean, again, anybody who actually looks at what's going on here can see this immediately. And what that means is, is that the constraint, again, isn't you know, how much you can tax from people or how much you can successfully borrow by issuing bond instruments that people are willing to buy. It's rather the resource constraint. That is to say, you're not constrained in what you can spend until you've put enough money into the system that it so vastly exceeds the resources that can be purchased with that money that the money begins to inflate. It begins to become worth less. That's the only real constraint. Now, let's go back to this issuing word for a moment. One nice way to see what the difference is when it comes to fiscal or monetary matters between a government or a sovereign public on the one hand and private citizens who partly constitute a polity on the other hand, or households or firms or whatever, is to note that in a certain sense, all of us are issuers. All of us who are able to borrow are able to issue a kind of money. Let's go back to that promissory note term that I used before. I noted that the word note that's written across the top of a dollar bill or printed across the top of a dollar bill or any other currency unit is short for promissory note. If you or I goes into Tompkins Trust, you know, the bank uh, over on Triphammer, and wants to borrow uh, money in order to purchase a car, if you look carefully at what goes on in the transaction, essentially what happens is you or I, let's just say it's you for the moment, you're going to write a promissory note to the bank. That's part of the lending contract that you and the bank enter into. You're, you, for your part, sign a promissory note, which essentially acknowledges an obligation that you have to the bank to pay it back in installments over some period of time. That promissory note, as a legal instrument, is essentially at its very foundation or at its root, is no different from the promissory note that it, that's issued by the Federal Reserve, right? Your promissory note, its promissory note. Well, then what's the difference between the two promissory notes? Well, the great heterodox economist, Hyman Minsky, from whom many MMT folk learned, but not just MMT folk, noted, uh, I think, kind of memorably said or quotably pointed out ages ago, that anybody can issue a currency. The trick is to get it accepted. And the idea is that when you issue a promissory note, that's just to say when you acknowledge your indebtedness or your obligation to do something by signing a promissory note, you are, in that sense, sort of issuing a currency. It's just that you can't spend it anywhere you want to. You can't get it accepted anywhere you want to. If you go over to Ruloff's down in College Town and try to spend your promissory note, good luck with that, right? You're not actually going to be able to spend it. So one way of looking at what's happening when you go to a bank to borrow money is essentially you're entering into a temporary swap of your currency, which is not widely accepted, for federal currency, which is widely accepted. 
And you can think of the banks then as a kind of franchisee institution or as a kind of an outsourced credit checking institution that is essentially assisting the central bank, hence the polity, right? Hence us, hence we the people, assisting us the people in determining who the good credit risks are and hence who is worthy of allowing to enter into these temporary swap arrangements where they trade their own private promissory notes for these much more widely usable federally issued promissory notes known as dollars. Right? That's effectively what's going on here. And what's the difference then between you and me on the one hand and the government on the other? It's not the matter of issuing promissory notes. We both do it. The difference is that your and my promissory notes aren't widely accepted, but the federal government's is. And that's precisely why the federal government can't go bankrupt in its own currency. Just to check my understanding here. So when I go to the bank to get the loan for the car, my own personal promissory notes, which are my potential energy or pent-up credit in a way, get traded for government money or broadly accepted promissory notes, and that government money actually gets instantly generated right then and there out of nothing because I traded in my personal notes and the bank created the money out of thin air by adding my personal notes as an asset on their balance sheet and then creating the money and giving it to me as a liability. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you can think of, think of a promissory note as something that enables you to sort of monetize your own credit worthiness, you might say, right? So a lot of us are credit worthy, a lot of us are not credit worthy. Those of us who are credit worthy, we want to be able to quote unquote monetize their promissory notes. Well, what does that mean? We want them basically to be able to assume temporary control over certain resources in order to put them to productive uses, right? If everybody already had immediate control over all the resources that they needed to produce anything, to add any kind of value to the world or to the universe, there wouldn't be any need for credit, right? But the way things are, uh, oftentimes, you know, some kid comes up with a great idea. He's a computer geek, let's say, in Seattle in the 1970s and takes all the Fortran and Pascal classes in his high school computer science department um, and comes up with this great idea to do sort of home computing. But he doesn't have lots and lots of money that he can use to sort of realize this great idea that he has. So, you know, he has to go and find money elsewhere that he can put to use to do this. Now, you know, it'd be great if he could just sort of issue his own promissory notes in order to purchase everything that he needed to kind of bring together into the garage to build a prototype for a personal computer that might be usable in the home and that might ultimately transform the world over the next several decades. But, of course, he can't do that. So what he's got to do is he's got to find a way to trade his promissory notes, which are not widely acceptable and hence which will not give him direct command over the resources that he needs to bring together to make this prototype of, let's say, a personal computer, he has to sort of convince somebody else temporarily to swap widely usable promissory notes for his non-widely usable promissory notes. He has to find somebody to, quote-unquote, lend him money, to essentially to lend him federal promissory notes or the functional equivalent thereof, like a bank account that's suddenly credited or whatever. Now, insofar as he goes to a bank to look for that loan, you can then think of the bank as a kind of artifact of a decision that we've made as a society or as a polity. We've decided that we want it to be the case that people who don't have command over resources but have great ideas that they could realize if only they can be given command over resources to be able to get that command, even if temporarily. That command over resources just is, right, some kind of federally issued promissory note which also functions as a claim, a claim on resources, right? So that's another way to think about money is you can think of money as a claim on something. It's a claim on whatever you can buy with it, right? 
So in effect, we say, okay, we want this young computer geek to be able to exercise claims over resources, even though he doesn't already have those claims, i.e. he doesn't already have that money. So how do we do that? Well, let's say under certain circumstances, we'll let him trade in temporarily his private promissory notes for these public promissory notes, which can function as claims in that particular way. And what we're going to do is we're going to outsource the credit checking function, the sort of evaluation function, to entities that are sort of on the ground, quote unquote, closer to where the action is, so to speak, closer to where the computer geek is. Uh, After all, nobody in Washington is going to be able to sort of check the credit of this young fellow in, uh, let's say, in Seattle in the 1970s. So we call those institutions banks, right? These banks are essentially the institutions to whom we've sort of outsourced this credit checking function. And we say, you do a good job of checking their credit and making sure that they're a good bet. And what we'll do is if you do a good job of doing that, we, the public, will license you to do it. That's to say, we'll give you a banking charter and we'll allow you temporarily to swap the sort of public promissory notes, which are the dollars that you, the banks, are sort of custodians over. We'll let you temporarily swap those to these people in return for their private promissory notes, thereby conferring upon those people temporary claims on resources so they can bring those resources together and then realize these great, wonderful ideas they have, like the invention of home or personal computing. And then if you do a good job of that, of course, you're also going to earn a reward from it because we let you charge interest on those loans, and we'll let you keep that interest on those loans. On the other hand, if you do a poor job of this, if you're too profligate with your credit extensions, if you basically do these swaps with lots of people who do not turn out to be credit worthy, or if you sort of over-issue the credit money, so to speak, and thereby inflate a bubble, then we're either going to sanction you or we're going to place tighter regulatory restrictions over you, Or in the sort of extreme case, we'll actually take your license away. We'll revoke your banking charter and say that you're no longer authorized to do this. And in this sense, you can kind of think of so-called private banks or privately owned banks on the one hand, and then that public bank of banks known as the central bank, or in our case, the Federal Reserve System, in that sense, it's constituting a kind of franchise arrangement, right? And the Fed or the public more generally is the franchisor here. The private banks are the franchisee institutions. And then the product that is effectively distributed or purveyed by the franchisee institutions is the monetized full faith and credit of the United States, i.e. the dollar. You know, I hate to analogize the dollar to poison hamburgers, but you can sort of think of the Fed as McDonald's, as the corporation McDonald's, and you can think of the private banks as uh, the individual privately owned or operated McDonald's restaurants on Trip Hammer Road or whatever. And, you know, if they put out even worse hamburgers than they're supposed to, if, if, in other words, McDonald's were to put out hamburgers with salmonella or whatever, uh, I mean, not McDonald's, a particular McDonald's restaurant, it would ultimately lose its franchise license, right? That particular restaurant operator would no longer be warranted by McDonald's to sell McDonald's products, right? And similarly, if a bank doesn't do the job right, it will lose its privilege in distributing, again, the monetized full faith and credit of the United States, i.e. the dollar, which is just a way of saying it won't be allowed to do those swaps any longer, right? Because it's it's done a bad job of it. It's over-issued the dollar. It's done too many swaps. It's swapped even with people who are not ultimately creditworthy. It seems like government spending debates are completely at odds with the way MMT describes the role of the currency issuer, which is, of course, the government itself. Can you explain what spending debates would look like if both parties in Congress broadly accepted MMT? Yeah. They would look altogether different. They would actually focus on what really ought to be focused on, and that is 
at what point does government expenditure become inflationary, right? At what point do we bump up against the resource constraint? Now, there have been times, you know, in the middle of a boom, for example, if the economy is going great guns and there's no shortage of money out there, and indeed, there might even be a hyperabundance of what we can call credit money, as there was in the lead up to 2008, in a case like that, a government expenditure could indeed be problematic because it would add more demand to the macroeconomy and would thereby exert inflationary pressures. And so we might say, all right, well, then we either have to trim back on government expenditure in a case like that or refrain from engaging in government expenditure in a case like that. Or if we decide that the government expenditure actually is essential and has to be done, then we'll take some sort of compensatory, more contractionary measure elsewhere to help sort of counterbalance the government expenditure and thereby prevent an over-issuance of credit money in aggregate. That's essentially then what taxing would come to look like, or that's the, the significance that taxing would be recognized as having. We'd say, okay, let's say that this particular infrastructure expenditure is absolutely essential. It's just the case that we really do have to fix these roads and bridges maybe because they're classic public goods of the kind that no private actor can rationally finance or provide. And so we have to provide it publicly. But there's a boom going on. And so any government expenditure that's made in order to bring this infrastructure into being is going to be inflationary unless we sort of drain some purchasing power out of the economy in a way that kind of counterbalances this additional purchasing power that's being injected into the economy by the government. How do we do that? Well, a couple of ways of doing it, Ron. One way would be to tax. And so we say, well, let's tax in an area where it'll be least harmful, let's say, or, or most readily bearable in that area. And we'll tax there. And that, again, will sort of suck some of the purchasing power out of the economy to counterbalance this injection of purchasing power that the infrastructure expenditure is putting into the economy. Similarly, when it comes to open market operations by the Fed or sort of issuance or otherwise of treasury securities of one kind or another, we say, okay, look, this is another way essentially of impounding money, right? If there's too much money out there with the added expenditure by the government on infrastructure, then we want to suck some money out to sort of compensate, again, for that injection that's being put in. One way to do that would be to issue more treasury securities, which essentially is a nice way then of sucking some money out. It's essentially another kind of swap. We're swapping treasury securities, which are not as widely spendable as money, for Federal Reserve notes, so to speak, which are spendable as money, thereby taking out a little bit of immediate purchasing power you know, out of the economy, as long as that money that's now coming into the coffers through the sale of the securities is not itself immediately spent. If it can be what we call impounded or sterilized, then that's a way, again, of essentially regulating the total quantum of credit money outstanding out there in a way that prevents inflationary pressures from becoming too much. So what's sort of interesting is there, you know, there have been people who have noted this, right? A former New York Fed official back in the 40s, Beardsley Rummel, was sort of well known for having noted this. I think it was in 1946, something around the mid-40s. Beardsley Rummel famously noted that the real function of taxation, once you have a sovereign currency that's issued by the sovereign itself, is essentially to regulate demand, uh, essentially to modulate aggregate demand out there in the economy when the public sector is spending, right? So you know, if you're in the middle of a slump, you shouldn't accompany your public spending with taxation because the whole point is to get more purchasing power out there during the slump. You're trying to get people to stop hoarding, get people to start spending again, get things to sort of start moving again. But if you do then actually succeed in bringing about a recovery and the inflationary pressures begin to build up again, 
then of course you have to make a choice. You either trim back on the expenditures if they're sort of non-essential or not that terribly important or whatever, or if they are essential, notwithstanding the fact that you have a buildup of demand, keep doing them, but compensate by, again, taking some money out of the system by heightening the taxes or, again, issuing more treasury securities. So that's what a, I think an MMT-flavored discussion of fiscal and monetary policy would focus on the real function that taxation discharges and the real function that bond issuance discharges, and that is essentially aggregate demand management and inflation avoidance, but also deflation avoidance, not to bring in some money so that the government can spend it. The government doesn't have to bring in money to spend it. The government makes the money so it can spend that money. You know, I think that's the great thing about MMT is it kind of focuses the eye on what actually matters. Right? I feel like it's worth dog-earing this part of our conversation, and maybe we'll save the details here for a future episode. But it's worth noting that if we were to think of taxes in this way, that what they actually do is take money out of the system to dampen inflation uh, rather than actually pay for and fund government programs, then debates and perspectives on the tax structure, you know, what is fair and what taxes should be, uh, would be entirely different. A lot of locutions that have become really common would be changed. We would stop using them and replace them with others. So, you know, you don't, the government doesn't tax in order to pay for, for one thing. And it doesn't issue bonds in order to borrow. The government doesn't have to borrow either, right? So that means, you know, the real functions of these two sort of common policy instruments that are oftentimes sort of loosely referred to as fiscal and monetary policy, the whole point of them is, is different than people think. And so the, the language that we use would change as well. Now, I don't myself get that upset or that worked up if people say, oh, you know, we have to bring in some taxes to pay for this, or we have to issue some bonds in order to borrow some money in order to pay for this, as long as I, you know, sort of make clear on the record that that's not literally what's going on, right? It's not really literally about that. But other people, once they sort of see the light, can't even abide the loose talk any longer. And, and I, I get that. I mean, I, I can't help but sort of wrinkle my nose when I hear expressions like that used either. You've said that you're broadly sympathetic to MMT and a fellow traveler. But do you have any specific reservations about MMT? Well, I don't actually have reservations about the movement or about any of the particular claims that are associated with it or any of the particular policy prescriptions that are made by it either. So in that sense, I don't have any reservations at all. Maybe the way to say this is I don't have reservations about MMT at all, as I understand it. I only have reservations about being exalted with the title of being an MMT theorist or a a serious MMT contributor. I, don't, I just don't know that I deserve the credit, so to speak, or the appellation or the label. I think of myself as a fellow traveler in the sense, well, in two senses. A, it seems to me that they're completely right <laughs> on everything that they, whenever they characterize, you know, sort of what's really afoot when it comes to government fiscal operations or monetary policy operations. It seems to me that they're right about all of that. And second, I think of myself as a fellow traveler without necessarily being actually one of them because I've sort of arrived at where they are through a slightly different route that I think is a complementary route, but a slightly different route. So here's what I mean by that. The MMT folk are economists, and they're all very accomplished economists, and they all have their PhDs in economics and have worked with great authorities in economics and the like. And they've sort of arrived at their position through the discipline of economics, right, and through paying close attention to sort of how fiscal policy actually works or how monetary policy works and, and the like. I've arrived at essentially the same positions from a somewhat more legal position, you might say. 
but they sort of, in a way, come down to the same thing. So maybe the best way to illustrate this is to point to a particular influence who's been particularly important, I think, in the thinking of MMT. And this is the influence of the so-called state theory of money that's associated with a great German economist named Friedrich Knapp, K-N-A-P-P, whose book, I believe, was published a bit over 100 years ago now. I think it was 1906, maybe the first publication. And it was just called The State Theory of Money. And The State Theory of Money is essentially, just basically is a kind of an early version of MMT, just sort of saying that, look, money is a creation of the state. It's something that the state issues. It's something that the state declares. And MMT sort of focuses on that, that the role that the state or the role that the sovereign plays in constituting a money. Now, I've arrived at essentially the same position by looking at the role that the law plays in constituting money, looking at the fact that a term like note or promissory note is a legal term of art, that it has a legal significance and a legal background. But if you think about it, that sort of comes down to the same thing, right? Because when we talk about the law, we're talking about the rules by which the polity itself operates and the rules that by which the polity operates and by which people who are citizens within this policy operate are all rules that have been promulgated by or are enforced by sovereign authorities, right, i.e. the state in one form or another. So, you know, in that sense, you know, I've, I've sort of arrived at the same point as the MMT FOLCAP from a slightly different angle, but from a kind of an adjacent pathway, you might say, because if you think of the pathway of the state on the one hand and the pathway of the law on the other as two distinct paths, they're nevertheless again, adjacent paths, as soon as you recognize the role that the state plays in constituting the law, in promulgating the law, in enforcing the law, and so forth. Thank you for the relatively quick romp through modern monetary theory and some of your ideas on government spending with MMT in mind. Maybe we can transition into your academic background now. Can you tell us about the transition from studying political theory and comparative literature at the University of Kansas to studying philosophy and mathematics at Oxford? Yeah, sure. So I was kind of, I guess you might say, sort of relentlessly diverse and relentlessly sort of transdisciplinary as an undergraduate. My work in political theory as an undergraduate included an honors thesis that looked at the romantic poetry of Karl Marx as having sort of anticipated his later economic and political doctrines. And then my work in comparative literature was essentially looking at the political theory that was implicit in the works of Dostoevsky and his novels. So even in my two sort of majors, I was kind of cross-disciplinary in that way. But among the, among the many things I did as an undergraduate, or the many sorts of courses or subjects I studied as an undergraduate, were a number of mathematics and, and logic courses, because I just found that stuff fascinating and, and exciting. And I think one of the most important maybe influences when I was an undergraduate was this honors calculus course that I took during my freshman year. And I, I'll never forget this course or the instructor. The guy who taught it had, I think, triple citizenship. I think he was, I think he had Swiss citizenship and American citizenship and Israeli citizenship somehow, or, or maybe that's not even legally possible, but he had a background in three different countries. He was an IBM consultant, a former Peace Corps volunteer in Nepal, just a really interesting guy. And during one unit when we were studying integration, we generated what was called a solid of revolution that had a finite volume and an infinite surface area. So intuitively, this would be like a, a can of paint that could, in theory, be full, and yet notwithstanding the fact that it's full, would not have enough paint within it to paint the outside of it. And that sort of rung counterintuitive, let's say, to say the least. So the prof and I also would, we would kind of hang out together because he was just a really interesting guy. And he, would, he had been a Peace Corps volunteer in Nepal, 
And so there was this film series, I remember, of Asian film masterpieces that was being shown during that year. And like every week, you could go and attend one or another of these masterpieces. And I would go to these because I was interested in film, too, and I thought I might even become a filmmaker. And I noticed that the instructor was often at these same film showings. And so sometimes we'd kind of go and grab coffee after these films or sort of take walks and chat afterwards. And so one evening after one of those films, we were chatting, and I said, do you remember that Solid of Revolution that you showed us in class two weeks ago or whatever? And he said, well, yeah, sure. And I said, how, is, how can that be real? You know, that's the typical sort of, I guess, naive question. And I remember he, he sort of looked at me almost with, like, with a disturbed look on his face, almost as though I had said, well, really, what, what really is wrong with the Nazis anyway, right? It was kind of like it was a, he seemed almost ethically disturbed that I was expressing something that might be taken for skepticism about the reality of this solid revolution. And I sort of sensed I shouldn't really push on, on this much harder, but it had me sort of wondering and thinking that, well, this is clearly a kind of an interesting field that people have commitments to particular positions on or, or, or particular takes on. And some people are you know quite even emotionally sort of invested in this. So I should look into this. So I started looking around. I started talking with a couple of philosophy professors from whom I had taken logic classes, sort of asking them about it. And they sort of turned me on to a whole field, I guess you could say, of research, of the so-called foundations of mathematics and the philosophy of mathematics. And so I started re- reading on the side works of, uh, of Georg Cantor, the founder of set theory, works by uh, Gottlob Frege, a, a great German uh, philosopher of mathematics, and, of course, some of the Bertrand Russell stuff, which was interesting, but much more sort of superficial than the Frege stuff. You know, this was all during your know, freshman and sophomore year of college, of undergraduate times. And so at the beginning of my senior year uh, as an undergraduate, I was granted this Rhodes Scholarship. And some of my sort of mentors, they said, what you ought to do with this thing is, you know, you get to spend two or three years at Oxford's expense or at the actually the Rhodes Foundation's or Rhodes Trust's expense studying at Oxford, what you ought to do is take that time to really focus on or really sort of burrow down into something that you found interesting or even fascinating as an undergraduate, but never really got the time really to kind of devote yourself to, and that you might feel really regretful later in life if you don't circle back to it. So they said, in effect, treat it as a hiatus and really focus on uh, on something like that. So I sort of took them up on that and focused basically then on mathematics and the philosophy of mathematics and the so-called foundations of mathematics while I was there. So that's what I did there, and I'll never regret it. It was a wonderful, wonderful time. And in in a certain sense, I've never stopped doing that. I continue to do work of that sort on the side. I continue to even to to write and occasionally publish in the peer-reviewed philosophical literature precisely because you you just don't ever lose your, your love for that sort of thing. But at the same time, there were a number of, you know, kind of nasty things happening in the world at the time that I was doing the work at Oxford. A lot of economic dislocation, a lot of people losing jobs, a growing homelessness problem, it seemed, in the U.S. and in other so-called developed countries, famines that were striking so-called lesser developed countries. And so I felt a little bit guilty and self-indulgent, too. I thought, here I am, you know, discussing the, the merits and otherwise of Platonism or intuitionism and the philosophy of mathematics. And all the while, people are dying or committing suicide because they've lost their jobs, or there's political dysfunction that's occurring partly as a consequence of economic dislocation and dysfunction. And so I thought I really ought to look into doing something a bit more practically useful as well. But it would be great if I could do that in a way that involved continuing to sort of indulge one's taste for you know formal rigor of the kind that you do in, in mathematics and, and in logic. 
so I began to think about doing doctoral work uh, in economics or in finance. When I left Oxford, I did end up starting to do work in economics and finance. But one thing I noticed there was that there seemed to be a paucity of attention to or appreciation of the kind of constitutive role that institutions play in constituting economies and in constituting finance itself. And then that got me to thinking that, well, you know, what are institutions? I guess in a certain sense, they're laws, right? Every institution is in a certain sense a set of rules or a set of protocols. An institution you can think of as a kind of software, and you can think of a software then as a kind of legal code or a sort of a set of rules, a set of protocols. Um, So that got me to thinking that one probably can't be thorough about economics or finance if one isn't also developing a rich understanding of the role that institutions play in constituting economies and financial systems and hence financial and economic dynamics. So I I started thinking I should be doing law, finance, and economics kind of simultaneously. And that theoretical conviction was lent certain practical support by another experience, which I think I might have mentioned to you in an earlier conversation, which was that while I was working in the area of of finance at first, I was also working with a, a group of homeless people I had sort of befriended and come to spend time with. That all started because I was sort of wondering why people were homeless in the first place. I sort of wondered, what's what's the story here? Why do so many people sort of live under bridges? And why is it that even people who seem to be very enterprising and hardworking, like guys who had car washing businesses and so forth, were you know homeless? And so I ultimately ended up camping with and then basically living for a while with a group of homeless guys under a bridge who had a kind of business. In a sense, it was a kind of kibbutz uh, in, the, in the full Israeli sense. It combined work with life. And so here I was, uh, nominally a doctoral student in economics with a sort of financial interest, who was also, you know, doing this kind of camping experiment under the bridge, living with these homeless guys. And I thought, you know, I could be more helpful to my friends if I also had like a vocational degree, like a law degree. And that thought, you know, kind of dovetailed rather nicely with the sort of more theoretical thought that really to understand economics and finance, it's very helpful to know institutions, which are laws. And so I decided to get a law degree while I was at it. And because I was in Kansas City at the time for family reasons, and because the University of Kansas, I should say the legislature of the state of Kansas, had recently passed legislation essentially allowing any Rhodes Scholar who had you know, received the Rhodes Scholarship while an undergraduate at a Kansas institution to go back free of charge to any Kansas institution to take additional degrees. I thought, okay, well, why don't I, I'll do a JD over at the University of Kansas, which is pretty close by, at the same time that I'm doing this finance and economics stuff and living with my homeless friends. And so I ultimately picked that up sort of on the side and then wrapped up the doctoral work over at Yale, combining law and finance and economics all together, working with some of the law faculty at the Yale Law School, but then also with Bob Schiller, who was my principal mentor uh, over at the Yale SOM and in Yale Economics, and then with John Romer, who was a sort of justice-oriented economist over at Yale. And of course, both of those guys are still there, uh, and they're still mentors and, and good friends. Well, wow, it's a it's a wildly interesting story. Yeah, it's certainly circuitous. It was <laughs> an adventure of sorts, right? Yeah. Maybe we can talk about some of uh, what you did at Yale. In your upcoming book, A Republic of Owners, you expand upon some of the ideas first laid out in your dissertation at Yale. You address structural problems that arise from a society that includes both a laboring class and an owning class. Can you take us through some of the main arguments in the upcoming book and your proposed solutions? Yeah. So this all starts back in the 
I guess, the later 1990s when I'm doing the law degree and working with my sort of homeless friends and sort of trying to figure out in a broad sense, like, what's gone wrong? I mean, why is it that homelessness seems to be on the increase? Why is it that economic stagnation or at least slow growth seems to be with us? Why is it that we seem to be becoming, during these very late Clinton years, ever more dependent on private debt in order to sort of drive economic growth and keep people employed? And it it began to occur to me in the sort of late 90s, I want to say 97, 98, and I'm I'm sure it was occurring to a lot of other people at the time as well. Uh, I just, I wish I had known them at the time, that in effect, most people's incomes these days sort of derives from two basic sources. Everybody has at least something in the way of a kind of capital income. I shouldn't say everybody, but a lot of people have at least something in the way of a capital income. And everybody has, or most people have at least something in the way of a labor income. That's fine, all, all well and good. But here's the thing. It seems when you look at the numbers, you know, the, the vast majority of Americans had very little in the way of capital income, right? At, at best, maybe pension fund income or incomes to pensions that they would later be able to use, maybe upon retirement or whatever. But when it came to sort of real ownership stakes in firms and the like, very, very skewed, right? A very small portion of the population owns by far the greater part of corporate equities and other securities that are issued by firms. And hence, in that same sector of the population, that 99% are correspondingly much more reliant than on, on labor income. On the other hand, of course, you have another part of the population that's almost entirely reliant on or derives by far the greater part of its income through capital income. It does very little laboring, if, if at all. This seemed kind of interesting to me. I thought it's an imbalance of sorts, right? And whether it's justified or not is another question, and we'll come to that in a moment. But leaving to one side the kind of normative valence of it, it was sort of an intriguing fact. Then if you combined that observation with another, which was that over the decades, I did some you know sort of research into the empirics and you know, it looked pretty clear that over the decades, returns to capital vastly exceeded returns to labor over time. The first hint of this is you just pick up a copy of, you know, it was probably an early edition of Jeremy Siegel's book, you know, Stocks for the Long Run. And there's the data going back around 100 years or more that basically, you know, you put together a diversified portfolio of corporate equities and about an 8% to 10% return per annum if you sort of adjust it over time. And that's actually pretty intriguing, right? And then you compare that to labor income growth over the same period, or maybe even just since the 1970s, and you you know reduce it to real terms, and labor income had been more or less stagnant, or certainly had not grown particularly rapidly since the 1970s, and yet capital incomes had grown really rapidly. Then, of course, you look at growth of the real economy as a whole, and it was pretty clear that the rate of capital gain exceeded that of the economy as a whole as well. And so I thought, well, that's all very intriguing, and it suggested a number of things. But one of the things that it suggested to me is that there's at least a prima facie reason to look for some way of bringing individual income portfolios on the part of just ordinary citizens into somewhat more close alignment with what you might think of as the national income portfolio, so to speak. That's to say, if 90% of value-added in the American economy's growth every year is attributable to capital and 10% is attributable to labor, then there's at least some reason to think it would be great if every individual's income portfolio was 90% attributable to capital and 10% was attributable to labor. Because at the very least, that would have a kind of stabilizing influence, right? You wouldn't have the tendency for aggregate demand 
ever to fall short of aggregate production, so to speak. Right? Though I was thinking of this in sort of very crude aggregative terms, but I was thinking an economy's productive capacity grows substantially year by year. If its consumptive capacity doesn't grow in sync with, or if its absorptive capacity doesn't grow in sync with its productive capacity over time, then of course you're going to have a sort of a long-term drag on growth, a long-term tendency toward secular stagnation, right? You're going to have a kind of a proneness to what the old 19th century political economists would call underconsumption or overproduction problems, right? Gluts of various sorts. And so at the very least, in order to have a kind of what you might think of as a sort of automatic Keynesianism, it seemed to me that it would be nice if individual citizens' absorptive capacities, in other words, purchasing power, could grow more or less in sync with the economy itself as a whole's capacity to produce more. Because if the consumption doesn't match the production more or less in lockstep over time, you're going to have these tendencies toward crisis or stagnation. And then it occurred to me that, well, one way of looking at Fed policy and at the sort of encouragement of private debt growth and of even certain forms of financial innovation that became prominent in the late 90s and early 2000s, most of them had to do with either facilitating the purchase of homes or facilitating the monetization of home value growth during the bubble. Well, one way of looking at all of that was as basically a way of substituting consumer credit for stagnating incomes, stagnating real incomes attributable to labor income, in order essentially to kind of keep consumption or absorptive capacity growing sort of in lockstep with productive capacity. But of course, resorting to the private debt strategy is almost by definition a, a short-term strategy. It's not a long-term sustainable strategy because at some point the debts have to be paid. So I thought, well, it would be great if the, if the consumer debt and the relying on asset price bubbles became less necessary by coming up with some way of automatically channeling the economy's productivity growth to the citizenry. And I thought the way to do that, again, is to bring individual income portfolios closer into sync with the national income portfolio. And so I started loosely thinking of this as what I call the income compositional symmetry principle, which is a kind of long-winded and fairly pretentious way of saying it's sort of the microcosm-macrocosm idea. If the macroeconomy is the macrocosm and it's 90% capital, 10% labor, well, then it's at least an ideal end state toward which to sort of aspire, where every individual income portfolio is a microcosm of that macrocosm. So 90% capital for you, 10% comes from labor for you. And I thought that would just solve so many problems. It's worth noting that some of these ideas, such as that the return on capital is greater than the growth of the overall economy, R is greater than G, surged into popularity because of Thomas Piketty's recent tome, Capitalism in the 21st Century. Yeah, when Piketty mania began in 2014, I was thrilled in a sense, because I, th I saw this as sort of vindication. And it was great that he finally wrote the book, right? Because he and, and Emmanuel Saez had been writing along these lines in various academic papers through the early 2000s, right? I think their first publications together were around 99, maybe, somewhere in that neighborhood. But those, of course, were obscure at the time. I wasn't aware of them at the time either. I, I became aware of some of their peer review stuff. I guess Saez was at Berkeley at the time. Piketty was in France. I want to say around the mid-2000s, maybe 2005, 2006. And I thought, God, where have you guys been all my life? And, of course, a lot of people continued not to know about them until the book came out, which was all the better that the book finally came out and kind of put this on the agenda. And then I thought, well, this now sets the stage. I can now actually publish my dissertation maybe um, because it won't 
seem obscure and strange now, right? It kind of has a, an obvious relevance. But in any event, the thought was, when I started working on the dissertation, okay, how can you go about bringing people's income portfolios into sort of closer alignment with that of the macroeconomy, that of the macrocosm, as I was calling it? What year was this? Just This was uh, around 97, 98, okay. I first began thinking about this. And I thought, you know, as a culture, we seem to be sort of allergic to just outright confiscation and redistribution for reasonable reasons, by and large, unless there's some obvious justification for robbing Peter to pay Paul, so to speak. Right? It doesn't sit well. And I think part of this is we have certain psychological tendencies or certain instincts. One of these is, of course, very well known and was even first sort of brought to wider academic attention by a then Cornell economist, uh, Dick Thaler, doing his experiments with Cornell coffee mugs, you know, sort of discovering and canonically dubbing the so-called endowment effect. So I think of it as sort of endowment psychology. People are more willing, I think, to see newly created or newly produced wealth maybe disproportionately channeled to the benefit of people who are currently under-endowed, then they are willing to have what they already have be taken away from them and given to them. So there's that psychological tendency, which seems to be deep-seated, and I'm certainly not without that or devoid of that, that tendency. So there's that, but another constraint is that you know we have certain political ideological traditions in our country that have been sort of part of our political culture from the get-go. And those two, I think, operate as constraints that basically if you want to come up with a way of bettering the distribution of wealth, let's say, of of capital, you're best off coming up with ways of doing that that are readily justifiable by reference to these kind of political ideological traditions on the one hand and that are that conform in one way or another or that do minimal violence to or minimal offense to these endowment sensibilities that we have on the other hand. So that got me to thinking, well, you know, this is sort of what financial engineering is about. There are ways that you can kind of reframe things, or there are ways that you can change the perceptions of things if you sort of re-denominate them or if you sort of restructure them financially so as to sort of change the way they're perceived or the way that they're, they're sort of felt. I mean, one of my favorite examples along these lines, this is not connected to the dissertation as such, but it illustrates the more general phenomenon is I'll sometimes, you know, my financial institutions course over at the law school, I'll ask people, what's the difference really between uh, a lease arrangement where I lease a car from a bank or from anybody else who's a a lessor of a car uh, on the one hand uh, and an automobile loan where I borrow from, you know, Tompkins Trust in order to purchase a car and the car itself becomes the collateral on the other hand. It sounds like they sound like very different things initially, right? You think, well, a lease is not the same thing as a purchase or a purchase with a loan. But if you think about the risk that's faced, right, by the creditor, so to speak, the lessor or the lender in these cases, it's essentially the same, right? If I miss my monthly lease payments for three months in a row or whatever, there might be a repossession. And so the car is taken back by the lessor. If I miss a few of my monthly loan payments uh, that I'm owed to Tompkins Trust, it repossesses the car. Or doesn't really repossess it, strictly speaking. It just possesses it as the collateral. It's essentially the same thing, but they feel sort of different because of the sort of financial denominating, you might say, of the, of the transactions. But more sort of specifically to the case that we're talking about, my thought was if we can essentially get firms to distribute shares 
to people who are currently under-endowed in terms of capital, in terms of their sort of ownership of firms, on various sort of ethically intuitable or ethically attractive bases, what we'll effectively be doing is channeling future growth or future wealth generated by firms, some of it toward people who are currently under-endowed, rather than sort of taking wealth away from people who are currently adequately endowed and giving it to people who are under-endowed. Now, if you ignore the temporal dimension, it's essentially the same thing. I mean, it's no, you're still redistributing. But the temporal dimension can't really be ignored if we're thinking in terms of our psychologies and the ways that we sort of think and experience things. Indeed, you know, it's been pointed out probably most canonically by Keynes himself that the fact that we use money is itself a sort of artifact of the fact that economic activity takes place through time, right? If you didn't have time, you wouldn't need money. And in that sense, the old adage that time is money is actually kind of literally true. So the temporal dimension matters. And so the thought I had was that, okay, what we want to do then is you don't want to, quote unquote, take away what people have now. But what you do want to do is develop means by which people who are currently under-endowed in terms of capital, they're capital under-endowed, to render them no longer capital and under-endowed in future by channeling more of the future-generated wealth toward those people than they would otherwise be receiving by not being shareholders. But then how do you do that? And that got me to thinking about essentially the ESOP and how the ESOP works and then whether the principle behind the ESOP could be used. What is the ESOP? I got I'm sorry, the, the Employee Stock Ownership Plan. Okay. So I'll say a little bit about how that works and how it's structured and then talk about these other ideas that sort of play on that. So essentially the idea was to sort of generalize the ESOP idea along more dimensions. So here's the way the ESOP works. So the ESOP is an acronym for the Employee Stock Ownership Plan. And the way the ESOP essentially works is a firm, on behalf of its employees, it will open up a trust. And the trust will actually borrow money in order to buy shares from the firm. But the firm organizes the trust as a sort of employee benefit program. And then as the loan is gradually paid down, the shares that the trust holds, you know, that the firm has conveyed to the trust, are gradually released into individual accounts that each of the employees owns. And so the employees sort of gradually assume ownership stakes in the firm. But all of this is effectively financed. It's the so-called leveraged ESOP. Essentially, this is all a borrowing sort of transaction that works in a way that enables employees over time to become shareholders. And we federally subsidize the transaction through the revenue code. We did this through ERISA back in 1994. The tax code favors ESOP financings. And so the idea essentially is to provide firms with an incentive to convey shares in themselves to their particular employees. Now, these initial conveyances obviously, by definition, dilute the current shareholders, right? The sort of pre-distribution shareholders are diluted in the sense that their stake in the firm is now shared with other people who were not previously co-owners uh, of the firm. So then the question becomes, well, why, do they, why are they willing to do this? Why do they put up with this? And there are basically two reasons, it seems to me, if you look at it. One is that it is levered, so it's essentially a, it's a borrowing plays a critical role in it, and the borrowing itself is subsidized by the federal government, so that means we, as a polity, are sort of tolerating this rather than just the shareholders. But then the next question is, well, why do we tolerate it? Why are we willing to do this? 
And I think it's because we view the employees as having a kind of moral claim in virtue of their sort of long-term loyalty to the firm, right? The fact that they've labored for the firm for a long time and that they've been part of this operation for a long time gives them a kind of special moral status in our view that warrants this particular benefit being conveyed upon them, particularly when it doesn't ultimately end up costing the pre-existing shareholders much at all, since the thought is that the conveying of the shares makes the workers work even harder. Now that they have a stake, they actually make the firm even more productive, and the firm becomes more profitable. Plus, it's able to borrow in order to finance its operations very cheaply, given the, the federal subsidy to it. The sort of term of art for the relation that the employees have to the firm is it's a patronage relation. They patronize the firm in a particular way. They convey something to the firm, and then we're thinking that what they convey to the firm warrants the conveyance to them of, of, of stakes, of shares in the firm. But there are other morally salient patronage relations that we can point to, it seems to me, right, in addition to the employment relation. One might be, for example, an ongoing customer relation that you might have with a firm. If you're a quote-unquote loyal customer who sort of regularly patronizes the same firm, the same restaurant or the same grocery store or the same producer of this, that, or the other thing, and so you've got a kind of an ongoing relation with that firm, that might be sufficiently morally salient as to sort of underwrite the adoption of some variant on the ESOP plan that you might call a QSOP or something, a customer SOP, customer stock ownership plan. Another one we might think of as a sort of a resource SOP. So let's say that you live in Alaska and they discover the you know, vast petroleum reserves. And you know we know that nobody, no human being put those petroleum reserves there. We might think of ourselves as sort of residents of Alaska, as having a kind of special nexus or connection to that particular resource, and therefore maybe we have a right to a, a certain stake in the proceeds of the sales of that particular resource. A fourth possibility might be, let's say you've got a natural monopoly in your area when it comes to the supply of some particular good, like power and light, right, as some public utility. Well, we know we have this model of the so-called regulated public utility, but another possibility would be to say, well, how about if the users of this utility, those who are in a certain sense captured by it because it's a natural monopoly in their particular area, become part owners of the utility as well. And so the thought is if you sort of notice other sort of ethically salient patronage relations in addition to the employment relation, then you can imagine, in a sense, replicating the ESOP financial structure, the levered ESOP financial structure, in other circumstances that involve these sort of patronage relations between persons on the one hand and firms on the other hand. And over time, then, you might then have you know, all of the citizens begin to become sort of shareholders in a, a growing sort of variety of different firms. Then you can imagine going one step up and imagine sort of SOP mutuals where people sort of diversify their holdings by basically, you know, sort of trading out. Let's say you and I have a lot of Wegmans shares, maybe because we're regular patronizers of Wegmans, and then, of course, maybe of, of NYSEG as well, because we live here and NYSEG is our utility and so forth. If we wanted to diversify our holdings a bit, we might enter into some sort of a SOP mutual with counterparts of ours in other towns, maybe other college towns, where it's not NYSEG, it's some other SEG, right? And it's not Wegmans, it's some other grocery store. And and so on and so forth, right? And, and of course, people who work for lots of different firms can diversify their holdings in firms by trading shares, essentially, with other people whose stakes are in other firms. And that would enable us to sort of diversify the portfolios. That might not get us up to sort of full realization 
of the income compositional symmetry principle. But it would, at least, it would at least sort of start us down that road. It would get us a little bit closer because a growing share of your income and my income would then come to be attributable to, in effect, capital uh, rather than just labor that we're expending in one capacity or another. That's the basic idea. I think of it as a kind of a financially engineered broader distribution of ownership of capital, thereby enabling the populace to diversify its income sources away from almost sole reliance on labor income, which I think is, would probably be a good thing as a matter of just basic justice, because a lot of a lot of capital owning now is inherited rather than you know earned. Of course, lots of it is earned as well, but some of it isn't. So as a matter of sort of justice, I think it would be a good idea. But even as a matter of efficiency, if we think of macroeconomic stability as being a sort of an efficiency matter, it would have a kind of stabilizing influence, and it would render us much less reliant than on consumer debt and you know sort of lax regulatory regimes that are lax precisely in order to encourage the taking on of more consumer debt because everybody realizes we need something to substitute for stagnating wage and salary income. And then finally, to get back to this matter of our sort of ideological traditions, it seems to me that it would be very much in keeping with our ideological traditions as well. We used to think of ourselves as, and the the original founders referred to our, our new polity back in the 1780s as a republic. And we tend in modern days not really to think much about what republic means. We just It's kind of like democracy in that sense. Oh, yeah, democracy means that you know, people vote. And republic, yeah, it's something to do with democracy or whatever. But most people, I don't think, really know what republic you know, originally meant. But it comes down to us from the age of the so-called Roman Republic before Roman became an empire. And the idea of a republic is it's a polity. It's a race publica. Race is the Latin for thing. Publica, of course, public. So a, a public thing, thing of the public. It's essentially a polity constituted by a bunch of people, each of whom is more or less economically autarkic or self-sufficient. In other words, nobody is dependent on somebody else for his or her livelihood. Nobody has to worry that, oh my God, I'll starve to death unless I can get somebody to hire me to harvest his crop or to work in his store or what have you. The idea is that the citizens are all sort of economically self-sufficient which then essentially kind of conveys to them or sort of endows them with a kind of political independence as well that they can then bring to the table when it comes to collectively deciding what we together as a we rather than a bunch of eyes are going to do. So it means that basically political decisions become great big sort of first-person plural decisions because there's a we there instead of just like a few oligarchs who have everybody else sort of being dependent on them. And our sort of earliest economic and social policies throughout the late 18th and then almost all of the 19th and then much of the sort of early part of the 20th century were pursued with that particular aim in mind, right? The Homestead Act of the 1860s was all about enabling everybody to be what was called in the old common law language a freeholder, that everybody would be able to be sort of economically self-sufficient. A lot of the early antitrust law, as developed in the late 19th, early 20th centuries, was not about maximizing consumer surplus. It was about maximizing the number of small business owners, the number of people who basically owned their own companies rather than having to be employees of others. We had this very well, I think, articulated idea that we don't have a permanent class of employees in the economy. What we have is people who do apprenticeships, whereby they are employees when they're young until they learn their craft or whatever. And then become economically independent. And then they become economically independent, yeah. And they take on their own apprentices. 
And, you know, this was a view of the, you know, the early Republican Party. It was called Republican for that very reason. And Abraham Lincoln, one of his most famous speeches at the time that we, for whatever reason, we never hear about anymore, was precisely about that. He was saying, look, it, this isn't just about freeing slaves. It's very much about that. But it's also about ending what he called wage slavery. And Lincoln was very explicit about the parallel. He said that in the South, they own labor. In the North, they rent labor. But the rental contract, in principle, isn't that much different than the purchasing contract. Ultimately, we want labor to be free. And they called it the free labor, free soil movement. And the idea was free soil meant turn the slave states into free states. Free labor meant that laborers would be free. They wouldn't be dependent. And so the idea is they would have their own tools, they would have their own equipment, they would have their own land if land was a productive factor, which of course it very much was in the 19th century. And of course our own beloved institution, Cornell, is a product of that same set of policies. While a lot of people have heard of the Homestead Act, very few for whatever reason seem to have heard of the Land Grant Acts, but those were passed at exactly the same time. And it wasn't an accident. It wasn't like, you know, you happen to be wearing a blue shirt while I happen to be wearing a blue shirt. This was planned. It was coordinated. The idea was for all of that land that's being distributed to be made productive, people have to be able to learn how to do it. They need a certain kind of special vocational education. And the land-grant institutions, of which Cornell, of course, is one, were essentially put out there to do that, to sort of spread higher education that was sort of vocational in character in the sense it was meant to sort of teach people how to make productive this resource that was now being very broadly distributed among them. And there was a multi, there was sort of a sequence of Homestead Acts over the course of the 19th. The last of the Homestead Acts was actually passed, I want to say around 1912, 1913, sort of basically early 20th century. And a lot of the land-grant uh, action and land-grant institutions, as you know, came into being even after the original land-grant act. And that was all about making us as a sort of society of owners and a, or a society of owner-producers. And that's why, you know, one reason that the, the book that the dissertation is uh, turned into is called A Republic of Owners. This republic word has a, a meaning, and so does ownership in this context. We were really interested to learn that you're working with a new private equity firm that aims to organize employees to buy out the companies they work for. This buyout concept aligns nicely with your belief that transitioning to a republic of owners would be a great thing. Can you tell us some more about the new private equity firm? Yeah. So in my in a sort of another life, I mean, I, I basically I live between Ithaca and New York, and do quite a bit of work over at the firm that you actually mentioned at the top of the interview, Westwood Capital, where I'm a senior counsel and a very close friend of mine is that was the sort of founding partner of Westwood, and we've been working together there for quite some time. And he's also, as it happens, going to be an adjunct professor here at the Cornell Law School, and he's already a fellow of a an institute that I co-run here. So uh, this is Dan Albert, a guy with whom I co-author a lot too, very close friend, as well as co-author. So we collaborate on a lot of projects, and we both, I think, have kind of academic or sort of theoretic interests on the one hand, but then we have practical interests on the other, and, and of course the, the things sort of cohere. So what we're working on at the moment is this project that you mentioned a moment ago. We're, we're acting on a strategy that we sort of thought of along with uh, a couple of collaborators. So the idea here is there's a certain number of companies out there, sort of mid-sized to smaller sized, that were founded by one person or maybe some family. And the founder is approaching his or her 60s, right? Maybe you know around 60 years old, 65 or whatever, sort of thinking about retiring, thinking of moving on, and therefore you know kind of looking for some successor to sort of take over the firm. 
But the kind of person we have in mind doesn't want simply to sell the firm to an ordinary private equity firm because, of course, the, the overwhelming likelihood is that that firm will simply part it out. And this founder would like the firm to kind of persist as a kind of legacy. Now, the first sort of candidate of people to whom you might convey this legacy firm would be one or another of your heirs, right, one of your children. But there are you know, plenty of people who found firms who either don't have children or whose children just aren't interested. They just don't want to continue the family business. Just like sort of Jimmy Stewart, you know, remember in, the, in It's a Wonderful Life, kind of balked at having to sort of take over his dad's old savings and loan. In the end, he does so, but he, didn't, he sort of didn't want to. So it occurred to us that the next best thing for a person who fits this description, you know, somebody who has this profile, might be, let's say that, you know, your kids aren't interested or you don't have kids maybe the employees would want to buy the firm out and continue it. And they would be a kind of next best thing to your own kith and kin. And in some ways, in some cases, they might even be preferable. They might even be, in a sense, your own kith and kin, vocationally speaking. What we thought we would do is we would look then for people who meet that profile, basically people we, we know are founders of firms who are sort of getting toward the ends of their careers where they're thinking about retiring, and who, you know, as far as we know, don't have kids who are interested in buying their firms, and approaching them to see if they would be willing to sell the firms to their employees. And then what we are doing is organizing essentially a private equity firm that would basically raise the money that the employees would then use to do the buyouts. And we can structure this in a way that's advantageous to everybody, the workers and the lenders or the contributors, by making use of the tax code's own advantages that it conveys to ESOP financing. So that's the basic idea. We have a classic sort of investor in mind here, too, somebody who wants to do well by doing good. Um, so somebody who wants to earn a return uh, but is willing to sort of sacrifice some increment of return in return for the knowledge that he or she is doing something that's kind of socially valuable. And we are finding that a lot of people do find the prospect of broadening or proliferating employee ownership of firms to be a socially valuable thing. It doesn't mean every firm has to be employee-owned, but you know, all else being equal, if we could grow the number of employee-owned firms, that would probably be a plus. It would probably be a good thing. So we're finding plenty of people are willing to contribute capital for this purpose to help basically get the private equity firm up and running. And by the same token, at the other side of the transactions, we've got plenty of people who seem to be eager to sell their firms to their own employees when their kids don't want to sort of, uh, you know, take over. Bob, thank you so much for coming on Present Value. Where can people go to learn more about your work? Uh, so there are a number of places. If you just were to Google my name or just Google my name and wiki to find my wiki page, there's quite a bit up there. Another place is just my SSRN page. So if one were simply to Google Robert Hockett SSRN, I think I've got something like 70 works posted up there. So there's quite a bit there as well. And the stuff that's gotten the most traction is sort of up at the top of the list because it has the most downloads, I guess. But there's a lot of stuff that's that didn't get quite as much traction, at least not yet. It's sort of midway down, you know, number 25 or number 30 or whatever on the SSRN list. Quite a bit can be found that way as well. And I've got several books coming out soon. Um, so, you know, people, I suppose, keep their eyes peeled for the books as well. Some of them are meant to be popularly accessible. So they'll probably be in some of the bookstores on the sort of, you know, new and interesting, I hope, you know, on some of their sort of front tables. Um, they're not, in other words, all going to be sort of dry academic works. A couple of them will be that, uh, but a couple of them are meant to be a bit more popularly accessible. So hopefully those will be uh, available soon and people will 
be able to sort of read a bit more uh, there as well. Professor Robert Hoggett, thank you so much for coming on Present Value. It was truly excellent having you on. An absolute joy. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Present Value Podcast is an independent editorial project created by students at the Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. This episode was produced by Caroline Wright, Chris Albrico, and Harrison Job. Our editor was also Harrison. I'm your host, Michael Brady. Our engineer was Sam Lupowitz. Music by Poddington Bear. Logo by Kalechi Pomango. And special thanks to Cornell's Language Resource Center for their technical assistance. Until next time, thanks for listening to Present Value.